Android Radio. We're on episode number seven. And this episode, we have what I have in the notes as Glubrid Royalty. We have Miss Cap- Mrs. Kathy Love with us today. Uh, and if you've done anything with corn snakes, you should know who Kathy is. Uh, many of the morphs we have are directly a product of her efforts, her and her husband's efforts um, in the 80s and the 90s. And many of us, and we'll get into this later, uh, but kind of learned how to breed colubrids with their books. Uh, and I certainly can say from my personal experience, the first captive breeding of any reptile I did was a pair of normal corn snakes. And I read the corn snake manual front to back weekly until I actually got locks and eggs. And, and you know, so uh, Kathy's definitely responsible for some of my success in a very direct measure. Uh, but before we move on to Kathy, we have our updates. So, hey, Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Um, it's good to finally come back from our dry spell and get another one of these episodes out and and kind of get back in the groove here. Yeah, it's been been a little while. Sorry for those of you who wanted more content. Uh, Matt and I both are, are, are messaging apps are blowing up with people saying, good job, keep it up. Uh, so we love hearing that. Um, if and many people are giving us suggestions for future shows, which are kind of, you know, that's that's fantastic. Now that we're into episode seven, uh, we, we kind of have an idea of what our format is going to look like. And I know Matt and I plan on having a couple episodes with just him and I discussing a specific aspect of colubrid husbandry and breeding. And for that matter, we're getting a lot of information that y'all like it when we just nerd out on snake biology for the sake of snake biology. So we have some plans to definitely do some combo shows where we kind of talk about the biology behind the husbandry. Uh, so um, those will be coming out relatively soon. I think we hope to record the first one of those within the next week, week and a half. So we'll we'll keep the topic secret, but it's something that a lot of you have asked for. So there's that. As far as updates with me, um, we're at that point in my semester where things are just insane. Uh, with that, that time period between midterm and finals is where many people make it, make or break it. And I've been helping students left, right, and center. Uh, uh, the snakes are going down at the university and they're going down in my home collection. So it's brumation time. It's finally getting cold in Northern West Virginia. So I can, you know, put things away to, to go to bed. Everybody's cleared out. That's actually what my big task is over the holiday is, uh, to base, basically get everybody into brumation. Um, and as far as my collection is concerned, the only update I have is I am now in preparation for writing the Hognose Snake book. Um, I thought that I should probably have all species of heterodon in my collection. So I recently picked up from Kevin Fisher a pair of southern Hognose Snakes, which are kind of rare and a bit pricey. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that I got animals from a captive line and, and knew that the animals were not collected directly from the wild. And so these are absolutely captive-born Um snakes and it was kind of interesting feeding them the first time because i kind of sat there with massive trepidation as i showed them the pink and both of them just scarfed it right down so that was pretty pretty cool uh but other than that that's really the only updates i have so mr most anything new in your world well everything started to cool down now for the season so i'm just kind of doing my final checks and obviously maintaining water bowls and 
you know, weekly checks on animals just to make sure everything is mm-hmm. cooling properly and there's no um, obvious signs or anything that I need to watch out during the cooling season. But it's free time. So for free time, <laughs> that means now I get to work on some of the projects that Zach and I have kind of alluded to, uh, which includes working on a presentation with one of Zach's graduate students, Peyton. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll actually be working on a presentation for a master series on the reproductive biology of file snakes. And we'll be working on a paper to correspond to that too, which seems to be lacking in herpeticulture as well mm-hmm. as the scientific literature. So we're, we're looking forward to bringing that to the greater community too. Um, recently, as part of an annual tradition with Stan Grumbeck and I, I just received my box of animals, which included some species that are very exciting and might also stir up some conversation for your book, um, which are a trio of Oxyrophus fitzingeri. Um, So I'm looking forward to playing with them. Um, Very unique species, um, just their coloration pattern, just very striking animals. Um, And also there were some Angolan pythons in the box, which seem to have disappeared from the hobby itself, which, you know, I'm not a ball python person, but I am a lover of all different species, especially animals that we don't very much see within the hobby. Um, But the Fitzingeri obviously fit in with our colubrid topic. So that's why I brought those up. And um, other than that, you know, it's really just kind of the reflection time on trying to figure out pairings for next year, trying to come up with um, different things where me personally, I can add to herpeticulture personally and how I can um, provide some of that information going forward for a lot of our um, future and aspiring keepers too as well. Yeah. Oxyrophus. I am jealous. (laughs) (laughs) So those are pseudoboines. Um, which if, if you don't know what those are, because I'm just going to talk about them because I've been in my own little universe with these <laughs> things for freaking yeah. months, it seems, but those are really closely related to Musaranas, if you know what Musaranas are. So Clelium, Boiruna, Paraphomophis, those guys. Yeah, those are awesome, Matt. I'm, I'm, you might need to take a picture of those and send that to me so I can put it in the book. Oh, I will. Because <laughs> <So. Yeah>. <clears throat> okay. I think it's been two years. Stan and I had actually worked with, um, I think it's Rambififer, the mm-hmm. flames. Yep. Um, but holy cow, anyone mm-hmm. that wants to work with those, I don't think they realize how small they are when they first hatch. Mm-hmm. Um, these animals, at least, they're already, they take frozen thawed pinkies out, out of the egg. So you're not That's where nice. the other ones, we were force feeding or assist feeding portions of tails, not even full tails to get them going. Um, I still have some pictures of those animals from when they were here in my collection. And unfortunately, they moved to uh, Stan's collection because his wife is much more dedicated (laughs) to um, helping and assisting (laughs) those Mm -hmm. types of projects where, you know, it's a different personality for some of those different species that require much more assistance to get going. Yes. Yes. And God bless Andrea for that. Mm-hmm. So. God bless Andrea. I don't even know who Andrea is, but God bless her because we need yeah. more of those in the hobby. Those are fantastic snakes. 
Um, and to have captive bred animals, that's that's or even captive hatch, that's a big deal. Right. So okay, are we ready to dive in? I think so. All right. So as stated previously, our guest tonight is Mrs. <laughs> Kathy Love. Uh, Kathy is the author of the Corn Snake Manual, which was published, I believe, in 2000. Um, and then in 2013, 2012, sorry, uh, Corn Snakes, the Comprehensive Owner's Guide came out, which was just simply an updated version of that book. I think, um, I think that was both, 2005. Oh, 2005. Okay. Oh, wow. So very shortly after the original publication. Um, and both of those, her husband, Bill, is on there as a co-author. Uh, but uh, we all know that Kathy is, you know, the queen of corns. I've heard her refer to that. And uh, many of the, the phenotypes or morphs that we have today are a direct result of her, her efforts. And even if she didn't produce them, she did take the time to organize a document that initially got many of us started. And I can say that corn snakes right now are experiencing a bit of a renaissance. Um, it would be, you know, we can give some credence to a new podcast that's out with the Herpeticulture Network people, Corn Stars, which focuses on corn snakes so if you like corn snakes give that a listen but without further ado how you doing tonight kathy great all right fantastic so we kind of have our standard questions and then we kind of diverge off into a general conversation specific to the evening so the, the first question i have which i know you've you've discussed in other podcasts <laughs> but we want to have it as well um which is what was your start or, or background in reptiles Wow, that goes back a long, long ways. <laughs> uh, my uh, my first encounter with a snake was when I was in first grade, I think, and uh, never saw one up close before. A boy at school chased my girlfriend and myself home with, a, I guess, a garter snake, and we ran because we didn't know anything about them. My father said, no kid of mine is going to be afraid of snakes. And he took me down to a neighbor's house. For some reason, they had a garter snake that looked like it was about 10 feet long. Uh, and it was in one of those uh, cloth clothespin bags up on the clothesline. I have no idea why. So after I got forced to handle that and got used to it and got fascinated by it, probably my father regretted that day of rafter because then I wanted my own pet snake and uh, finally, I got to keep the uh, the mascot from the biology department in, in ninth grade over the summer. He had a, a good-sized boa, about six or seven feet long. And after that, I finally kept on and kept on, and my father relented. And before you know it, I had a whole room full of mostly North American colubrids. Oh, fantastic. So what, what do you happen to remember what your first couple colubrids were? Well, actually, I got one before I got my father's blessing. When I was in uh, seventh or eighth grade, I went to the local pet shop and bought uh, uh, just a Wisconsin garter snake where I grew up uh, for 50 cents. And I kept it in my closet and I named him Vladimir. I don't know why. Uh, unfortunately, keeping Vladimir in a dark closet he didn't really last all that long, but that, that was my first one. And my first one that, uh, I actually got officially was a Wisconsin bull snake from spring green, Wisconsin. 
and that would have been like 1967 or eight or something like that. Traded it for 35 garter snakes that we caught. And uh, uh, that one uh, stayed with me for about 24 hours before it escaped. And then uh, two days later, my collie found it coiled up in the middle of the night in the springs of a couch on my father going, Kathy, get down here. And I said, oh, you found my snake. You found my snake. Thank you. Well, after that, I got a little bit better at containing them. Oh, fantastic. So, Kathy, you bring up something, though. Um, so you mentioned boa constrictor, six, seven feet long. So why colubrids? What attracted you, obviously, to keep going back down this road? I mean, whether it was bull snakes or garters, what really kind of accentuated that group, well, if you will? I think uh, at that time, I liked any snakes, any snakes I could get a hold of. And uh, North American colubrids were something that I could get a hold of a lot easier than boas and pythons. But during my high school year, it was my dream to have a boa and a Burmese python, which at that phase, they called them dark phase Indian pythons. And uh, I, I was able to get one by the time I got out of high school and I, I had a job. Uh, I had a Burmese python and I had a couple of boas. And before you know it, I had all kinds of stuff because I was an 18, 19 year old that just wanted everything I saw. And uh, as time went on, um, well, we started in, in the 70s, a few years after I graduated high school, I started with a business partner, the Living Jungle Mobile Reptile Exhibit, and uh, we traveled all over the United States, which, boy, for a, a you know young 20-something uh, out of high school with no particular you know job certifications or anything like that. What a great way, you know, no internet, uh, long distance phone calls cost a lot of money. So we got to go and uh, meet all these people from zoos and herb societies. At that time in the mid seventies, a few people in California and, and Arizona, but especially California, were just starting to breed a few, uh, a few colubrids. Uh, at that time, the local uh, head of the reptile department in, in Milwaukee, where I lived, said, well, you know, you can't really breed them regularly because in order to breed them, you got to cool them down. And if you cool them down, they'll catch a cold and die. So if you breed them, it's just luck. And that was kind of the thinking back then, except for a few of these pioneers like Bob Applegate and a few others out in the West Coast. Uh, so I got to know Joe Laszlo and uh, my partner was his roommate. So all three of us became roommates and uh, traveled around and met Joe's contacts. I mean, it was it was an amazing way to get a Rhodes Scholarship. Uh, and it kind of led to everything else. And at that time, I didn't have particularly more interest in colubrids than boas and pythons and lizards and everything else. Um, I really liked them all. But as time went on and we got to see more and more things and I realized how how much I was into really colorful things and and I've always been kind of a frustrated artist. I, I have no artistic talent at all. But the color palette of corn snakes is my artistic palette. And I thought, you know, I can make something that we don't already have or make it what to my eyes looks better. 
and that's kind of what we got got me into the colubrids was the idea that I could use their colors in an artistic way and create something I don't already have. That's kind of fantastic. So as far as your history with colubrids then, so you did the, the, the touring. Um, I know you were affiliated with Glades Herp. Yeah, that so came later. Can you talk about that? Well, after, mm -hmm. after uh, uh, several years in, in the mid-70s of touring all over the United States and learning so much uh, from zoos and, and uh, new breeders and, you know, all everything was so exciting and new back then. Uh, and then uh, Bill Love came to work for us, my partner and myself, towards the end of that time. And after, I don't know, a year or two or something like that, Bill and I decided... Uh, we liked each other better than we liked the partner and the touring. And so we got married and sold our share of the business and moved back to Florida where Bill, his parents were, and uh, he had been raised up since he was 15. And we really wanted to start doing some of this breeding ourselves. We had actually bred a few things in the uh, Living Jungle Reptile Exhibit on the road, including we were one of the first people to breed Vipra Xanthina. Uh, on the road, so that only a couple zoos have done that. So it it was pretty exciting, but we wanted to you know get our own place and give our hand at it and everything. So uh, when we got back uh, and uh, in 1979, we got married, got our a mobile home on two acres, and started uh, setting up colubrids to breed and mice to feed them, uh, and doing our own little business. And uh, then I, uh, I went to nursing school to get my licensed practical nurse certificate so that we could fund all of this. And shortly after that, mm -hmm. or during that time, Bill worked for Tom Crutchfield, who had a place right there in Fort Myers where we were, and uh, got to learn even more about the business. And uh, so for, for most of the 80s, uh, between the, the nursing to support it and Bill working first for Tom and then for a tropical fish farm in, in Fort Myers, uh, we finally kind of got to do what some of the people on the West Coast and a few people in other parts of the country were starting to do and put out our price list. And it grew so fast. It was a home business, but it was outgrowing us. So in 1989, we decided we needed to take it to a commercial location. And we wanted somebody that came from a different area of expertise than us because we had the, the captive born, especially with Cluebirds thing down pretty well. But we had known uh, Rob Roy McGinnis from uh, Pet Farm uh, down in Miami. And he was coming from that. I mean, he also bred some things too, but he came from more of the uh, import and the had an idea of what all that was about. So we were able to complement our talents and experience and uh, he was ready to move out of Miami anyway. So he moved his family over to Fort Myers. And I think it was October of 1989, we started Glades Herp. And uh, we did that until 1995. Boy, talk about learning a lot. When we started, <laughs> nobody had ever heard of anything like the internet. By the time we, we mm -hmm. uh, sold our share to Rob in 1995 so that uh, Bill could uh, do his Madagascar tours and his photography, which was really pretty exploding at that time too, the, uh, the photography sales of books and care books and things like that. 
Um, so we sold out our share and turned it back into a home business again. Uh, but boy, by that time, the internet was just starting to get known by average people and uh, uh, price lists were almost at the point where you could start doing them online instead of mailing them out. We mailed out 5,000 price lists every month for years. So things have just changed so much since I first started doing this in high school in the 1960s. That's incredible. You know, and, and, and Kathy, for some of the people that haven't followed herpeticulture and know the history here too as well, were you still working with corn snakes throughout this time? When when did that really accentuate your well, collection at home? I I had kept corn snakes along with lots of other things. And uh, when we were on the road, we got a few, a uh, couple of really nice Okatee specimens from, you know, be actually being there at the location. But at that time, nobody had been breeding them for generations to try to do anything different than just collect pretty ones and produce some babies. Uh, so in 1985, we produced our first albino corn snake uh, clutch. And uh, up till that time, we'd had a, a few okatees and, uh, uh, you know, a few this and that and a few other things. But really in 1985 is when we first started producing more than just a clutch or two of this and that. And by 1987, we put out our first price list and uh, I... We called it, uh, uh, well, we, we had a couple different names, but we were Glades Herpeticulture for a while. And uh, so that was 1985, 87 is our first list. And by 89, we were having people coming up at midnight and buying stuff. And I was afraid our neighbors were going to think we were drug dealers. So by 89 is when <laughs> it, it grew really fast once it started. And but and that's when we were and, really and Kathy. Uh, uh, no, Kathy, go ahead. Um, I didn't I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was going to say, was there any pivotal point in terms of morphs or colorations that really kind of set off the corn yes. snake aspect but for you? We weren't the first ones to produce albino corns and things like that, but I believe, as far as I know, we were the first one to ever name a particular morph besides just albino or anorithristic or, you know, a name like that. Uh, we were producing so many albino corns by the late 80s or very early 90s uh, that we started to see variations in family lines between one albino and the next albino. Uh, just through selective breeding, we started breeding the ones with the least amount of white together and the brightest oranges and so forth and the most amount of white together. And I believe when uh, one year we came up with the idea that these, these corns, we, we called them no white corns because they, they just basically were orange and red and yellow with no white. And then a year or so later, we decided to call them sun glow corns. So I think sun glow corns, and then a year or two after that, the ones with the most white, we started calling them reverse albinos, and then later than uh, albino okatees. So we we're trying to find a name that wouldn't confuse people too much because they weren't necessarily okatees, but they looked like what you would think an albino okatee would look like because they had wide white bands. 
So those two, the sunglows and the albino ochates, uh, as far as I know, were the very first named morphs of any reptiles that weren't just like a technical name like albino or amel or something like that. Well, that's cool. <laughs> so, yeah. so when it when you actually started to produce the animals, um, you had mentioned that you had you talked to some of the the um, the keep sorry the the keeper the curator at Milwaukee, and he told you about the cooling. You have to cool them down, and then they're going to get sick. I don't like today. If you're getting into colubrid breeding, a lot of times you're kind of told, "All right, we'll get a pair of corn snakes, and here's the recipe." We always talk about the recipe, but if you don't know that recipe, and you're just putting snakes together, I can totally see where it leads to absolute frustration. So, can you talk a little bit about just like back in the the, the late '60s through the '70s about that whole discussion and the people who figured out that you got to cool them down from your perspective? Because uh, I've had a lot of people in the past two weeks talking to me about brumation. Um, so just a little history of it would be kind of cool if we could. Well, back back in that. the late 60s, I was in high school and I belonged to the uh, the Milwaukee, uh, or what was it called? The Milwaukee Area uh, Herpetological Society, I think it was called. And I went to the monthly meetings. It was at the Milwaukee Public Museum. I uh, got to know uh, Nickerson and Henderson, who both worked there. So got to learn a lot. And Sherm Ketchum was the uh, head of the reptile department at the zoo, got to know him. Uh, but at that time, they weren't that involved. In, they weren't even very interested in captive breeding at those facilities. But a lot of the Herp Society members were. So we used to talk about things. But I hadn't really at that point gotten to travel and meet people from other states who were doing it. It was uh, in the 70s during the time that I had my traveling reptile exhibit. And I also took some trips with Joe Laszlo. Uh, and that's that's when we really got to meet people like Bob Applegate. And uh, oh, there were some others. Oh, we went up uh, once uh, uh, to the, uh, west, the West Coast all the way up and down and uh met glenn slemmer uh so you know we we got to talk to a lot of different people at that point and uh there was philippe de Vaugely who was in florida at that time uh so uh joe lesla himself of course was one of the pioneers and he had a big uh coca-cola machine and he always said you got to keep them cool man he was from hungary and he had a very interesting <laughs> accent so uh uh, Joel was one of the pioneers himself, and he was one of the first people who, who used Vitalites and uh, uh, used uh, full-spectrum lighting for indoor reptiles. Uh, so uh, he really advanced things a lot with his experimentation and records and so forth. Very interesting. So, so did people just stumble onto the, you got to keep it cool? Or did somebody like look at the biology and say, okay, these things are getting cold in the wintertime. Let's just see what happens if we cool them down. Exactly. Uh, some people like Applegate had noticed that uh, in the first year after they would catch uh, like mountain kings or something like that, they would breed pretty well and have good fertility. But in the second and third year, not so much. And uh, they started analyzing why that would be so and uh, started experimenting 
with keeping them at different uh, uh, lengths of time and different temperatures and until they started to find what works. Uh, and uh, some snakes are such free breeders like corn snakes that uh, a lot of times they'll breed if they don't do anything but see the uh, daylight differences in the window. And uh, most people mm -hmm. in most parts of the country keep their houses a little bit cooler in winter than summer. So a lot of times corn snakes will just breed no matter what. But a lot of things like mountain kings take a little bit more than that usually. Yeah, uh, and that, that's a great point. And I think some of that even has to deal with the number of generations of captive reproductions that, you know, especially corn snakes, for instance. You know, you start to think at just natural cues and what's actually triggering that animal. And, you know, Kathy, as you mentioned, sometimes it could be as easy as just daylight and cycling the light cycle itself for those animals. Uh, sometimes that's all it takes. And uh, that that's why I'm, well, myself and everybody else on all the forums are always tell, telling the beginners, don't keep that pair of baby corn snakes together because you'll end up with a, a male that's ready far sooner than the female. And uh, just the light from your window might be enough that that female's got eggs when she shouldn't. Yeah, I, I actually am that guy. <laughs> when I was, when I, the first, um, I did one semester in Florida. I, li I lived there in the fall of 2003. And I bought a pair of just generic rando corn snakes at some guy's table. They were $10. And I just liked them because I've always just liked normals for some reason. And I was raising them together. Um, and they were, they had just hit a year of age and the same thing you were talking about my mother's basement where we were my wife and i were living at the time um it got real cold in the in the well, real cold it dropped down to like the mid 60s during the day and then in the winter time and in the summertime it went up and i never in a million years thought that i could get a clutch out of a pair of corns that were not even a year old and i can tell you that that is possible <laughs> because i gotta yep. i was i was going through the the you know your book trying to breed the the animals that were three years old. Meanwhile, these other animals that are in a tub off to the corner are doing everything without all this fancy stuff. Uh, so I actually produced two clutches. One, I was following your recipe. The other one just happened naturally. And uh, it was crazy. Anyway. Okay, cool. Uh, so in 1985, when you said you produced your first clutch of uh, morph corn snakes, I take it that you did employ the, the so-called recipe, the cooling them down and warming them up like that was a, a... yes where where we, were, where we were in southwest florida i uh, we couldn't get them as cool as we really wanted to because uh during the winter there you have a lot of warm spells where it just is not all that cool and so uh <laughs> we had a, a setup we actually had a setup where it was a, a shaded building uh but it uh, did not have air conditioning or uh heated except for an electric heater if we needed it and uh, and we had uh, heat cables actually we might have pioneered the idea of using these uh, uh, heat cables that were made for uh, wrapping around your water heater up north mm -hmm. and we had a built-in thermostat to them uh, that uh, kept it just below freezing and might get it up to like 60 or 70 degrees or something but Bill would remove that thermostat so they would get very hot to the touch. And uh, uh, we would just put them under there 
just having the cages above it enough so that they wouldn't melt the cages. And he would put them on light uh, or fan dimmer switches so it would have high, medium, and low. It wasn't actually a temperature control, but you could make it high, medium, or low and then check the temperature and use what you wanted to. So that was our heat. But in the wintertime, we would just uh, open all the windows and uh, uh, turn off all the lights and, and put some sheets over the windows or blinds. I guess we had blinds. We would close the blinds to make it as dark as possible. And oftentimes, it would only be like in the 60s instead of the 50s, which would be more ideal because they're less likely to lose body weight at the cooler temperatures when you're not feeding mm -hmm. them. But it worked. We produced lots of them. Uh, we, we also produced um, a lot of other colubrids in that same room, uh, lots of different kinds of Getula king snakes and, uh, uh, and some various milk snakes, everything from Hondurans to uh, Sinaloans. Uh, uh, and in, in a little side room, we actually had some venomous we were doing at the same time, eyelash vipers. We had a really nice eyelash viper collection, produced lots of babies of those of every different color there are. And uh, oh, cool. uh, yeah, oh, some coral cobras, a spitalaps. So we had we had quite a variety. So back in in those days, in the mid '80s, what was caging like? Like were these uh, aquariums or neodishas or custom made enclosures? I uh, a few people had used some various different, you know, rubber made type of uh, enclosures and plastic shoe boxes and stuff. I, uh, but not too, not too many. And, uh, we, we kind of, uh, took that idea and went with it. And, uh, Bill, Bill was a pretty good carpenter. So he built shelves that these, uh, plastic boxes would slide into. He actually drove all the way from Florida up to Maryland. I think it was where, uh, they sold these, uh, plastics that they no longer make now the, the real clear, but brittle ones that uh, you can't buy them anymore. Mm -hmm. I still have some of those from the 80s still left. Uh, I still have some of those heat cables from the 80s too, and some of them still work. <laughs> I can't believe it. Oh my uh, so, um, so we set it up. Bob Applegate had kind of uh, pioneered this other idea, which we did not use. Uh, it was custom cages that had, uh, uh, they were wooden cages with a glass front and they had a, a false bottom with a hole in it so in a drawer that came out so that they could have a subterranean area and you could still pull out the drawer. That was a really cool idea too, but we weren't quite ready to make cages like that. So essentially were, were these enclosures setups you had kind of like a prototype to racks where you have the, the tubs yes. or, or were they different? Okay. Yeah, they, they were pretty so, much racks. On, at what point did racks actually start showing up? Like, I, I think a lot of people today take that for granted, but um, I well, I think, know, we all I think, these things were not present. <laughs> so, the the way that we did it, I uh, was kind of the forerunner of that, and I, uh, as time went on, a, a lot of people in Florida started doing especially colubrids, but also pythons and other things too. And a lot of them started custom building racks, kind of like we did. I remember uh, Mark Bell at the time was up in uh, near the Detroit, Michigan area. And he had, uh, he had a, a carpenter professionally build these 
heavy duty racks that were made out of marine plywood and they held 28 quart rubber maids in them uh this uh, this must have been uh in the late 80s or early 90s that mark had that done because when he moved to florida and it was about the mid 90s that he was um almost finished bringing his stuff down he told bill that uh if bill would take a, a big moving truck up there to bring a whole bunch of stuff down we could get a bunch of his uh heavy duty racks that held the uh six each one held six 28 quart rubbermaids and i actually have two of those set up in my reptile room right now from the late 80s <laughs> but it wasn't until much later that, that commercial reptile places started building this stuff you know back then in the 80s and 90s there was no Zoomed, there was no T-Rex. Uh, one of the fun things about Glades Herp was that uh, we, we got to come up with creative ideas of using products made for something entirely different for reptiles. Uh, I remember one of the things that we did was uh, we there was a medical supply company that would sell us expired uh, catheters and IV drip things and all that. Uh, really cheap because they were expired and they couldn't use them for humans anymore. And we actually sold them for uh, people who were keeping chameleons and wanting water drips and that kind of stuff. So we found a lot of stuff like that, that we repurposed. And I've always liked the creative side. Like I said, I'm not an artist, but mm -hmm. I like being creative with the abilities I do have. And that was to research and find cool things and turn them into something else they weren't meant to be. Now, Kathy, I'm getting the whole artist um, aspect of your background here, you know, not only from the sculpture side of creating some of these different water drip systems, but also the color aspects with the corn snakes. I mean, it's it's really fascinating because even, you know, Zach and I being early on in, in the hobby, I, I think a lot of people today take for granted how much stuff is commercially available. Um especially when, you know, talking about drip systems for chameleons. I remember drilling a hole in a, like a gallon jug water and putting just yep. like an aerator nozzle on the side of it just to help with some water drippage onto a live plant and things like that. Oh, it was so much fun just finding all these things. I can't even remember all of them now because it was so long ago, but I, uh, it, uh, uh, and then, of course, there were other animal supplies, like, for example, one of my goals, even way back then, was to find a really good uh, liquid diet for baby snakes or adult snakes that were, uh, you know, sick and, and uh, healing, uh, that would be a good, complete food and a good way to deliver it. Uh, well, there was this place called Popper and Sons that sold these uh, metal tubes, I guess, for feeding baby birds. And uh, those actually worked pretty well. And then I had a, a veterinarian friend who was a, a, a corn snake breeder too, back in the 90s and early 2000s. That was Connie Hurley. Uh, she's up in Wisconsin now. And for a while, she actually put together a, a little feeding system uh, for, for baby snakes. And she used uh, catheters for small dogs and cats. And uh, I, I ground up uh, ferret food. I'd come up with the idea of ferret food after talking to the guy who started Pretty Pet Food. 
Yeah, I talked to him on the phone for a long time. This was probably back in the 90s or whenever Pretty Pet was still fairly new because we had it at Glades Herb, so it must have been before 95. And he told me that they had researched, they had had a lab analyze different sizes of mice and rats and uh, find out all the macronutrients. And they designed their ferret food based on the nutrients of a young adult mouse because they said that's the natural food for ferrets. Well, it is for corn snakes too. So um, uh, he and I came <laughs> up with the idea that his ferret food, which included probiotics, and I talked to a lot of vets. None of them could tell me for sure if the same exact species of probiotics for ferrets would be good for snakes, but couldn't hurt. So uh, I, I used the pretty pet, and then later I used some of the other ferret foods too, because ferrets are obligate carnivores, just like snakes. And uh, uh, it seemed to work pretty well. One time I took a, a litter of baby Amazon tree boas. This was back in the 90s. And um, about half the litter didn't want to start eating. So as an experiment, I kept the whole litter for eight, for eight or 10 months. And I think four of the babies that didn't want to eat, I started feeding them liquefied ferret food. Um, at the same frequency that I was feeding mice to the other ones. And I never offered them food again until eight months later. And at that point, I, I compared them all. The ones that had been eating mice were slightly bigger. They all looked just as healthy as each other. And all four that I kept alive on ferret food for eight months, all ate and did great after that. That's, that's very interesting. I'm Right now, I've got a project with um, Central Florida Zoo that one of my grad students is about to do. And it's actually exactly what you're talking about. They were, we're trying to figure out a way to get a, a sausage for indigo snakes where we can get them the macronutrients and everything to give them the right nutrition so that they can, they, they suffer from dystocia. So they're not laying full complements of eggs. And they actually mm -hmm. think in that snakes in case that because they're obligate reptile eaters, they don't really eat the rodents, that the rodents actually aren't the best thing for them to be eating. So my student and I, today we were on a conference call and we're realizing that we're going to like be able to recite from memory all the macronutrients you get in a two gram mouse, 10 gram mouse, 50 gram mouse, 100 gram mouse. I don't even know if they get to 100 grams, but <laughs> maybe that's a really big mouth. Anyway, but no, that's that's fascinating that like, you know, we're talking about this now and you were doing it already back then. That's that's pretty so Cool. Are you so going? Did you try that diet? I'll go for it. Are, are, did you? Are you also going to include like the macronutrients of snakes to feed the indigo snakes, which would be also you? You could have people that have king cobras and musaranas and even king snakes also buy those sausages. Our idea is to figure out a way to make a sausage where we actually get the macronutrients present in snakes without using snakes because we initially people were talking about using snakes. And those of you who are tweaking about talking about feeding snakes to snakes, it's something we got to do. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, they, they just realized that it's cost prohibitive. That's the problem. Um, and so now with the technology we have available today, you can take a small amount of tissue from pretty much anything and turn it to ash and run it through, all kinds of different machines and get the exact chemical composition of what it is. So the idea is that basically do that and for the diet of the indigos, and then basically start looking at other things. 
but that's just in its absolute infancy. Um, shout out to Pay. That's her thesis project. Pay's working with Matt. She's already been, this is her second mention in the podcast. So <laughs> anyway. Well, that would um, be great. No, that'd be commercially available. Yeah. Oh, well, the good thing is that, you know, if, if we do this, her thesis will totally be available to, to everyone to see. So the rest of, I'm using the word recipe a lot tonight, but that'll be, um, that'll be present in that, that particular thesis. I see a patent coming along here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, I, what I would really like to see, uh, I, I, I still do tube feeding of baby snakes and I still use uh, ferret food ground up, but because of the, uh, the lumen of the tube being so small, not only do I have to blenderize it, but I have to push it through a metal tea strainer so that there's not any little tiny things that get stuck in it. What I would love mm -hmm. to see is for one of these uh, companies that make the sausages and so forth to offer a, a very small, like a, a large capsule sized uh, thing that would have the same nutrients as their sausages, because I have used them and they seem to work fine. Uh, but something that is stiff and small and could just be uh, put a little bit of oil on it and then just push it right down the little snake's throat for, you know, whatever colubrids uh -oh. or any other mouse-eating snakes that uh, that don't want to eat. It'd be great for Western hognose because they can be a bit of a pain sometimes. Yes, they can. But so I've now, tried that, Kathy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the problem comes is they're... Um, the capsules themselves you can buy, but they're plant-based. Yep. But uh -huh. what ends up happening once you actually put the actual fluid inside of it, it just starts to dissolve. I did um, that. Because I thought I, about this. Yeah. I I bought one of those back, oh, like 20 years ago. They It's a, a little, like a plastic or wooden thing with little holes in it. And you put the capsules in, opened, and then you put the stuff in the capsules for, they make them for people who want to make their own herbal supplements. And I did the same thing. I put some of my blenderized ferret food in there and uh, it dissolved. And then I thought, well, you know, I could put powderized because I've also powderized it in a, in a coffee. What do they call it? A coffee mill that you use, use to make your coffee beans into mm -hmm. powder. And uh, I could put the powder in there. I never actually tried it because I was a little concerned that it would uh, dry out the stomach so bad, uh, you know, the, the uh, powder, the amount of powder would dehydrate the snake. And I didn't know if they would drink it or not. But probably what I should do someday is to try doing that with some snakes that don't want to eat anyway and uh, just, you know, give it a try and, and soak them and see if they'll drink enough water that they can digest the powderized uh, pill. So another thing, um, just shooting this off the ball here, is um, I've often even thought about going back down that road with the experimentation with the capsules, but yep. using a gel gelatinous material so that uh -huh. it hardens up. So this way, when it does start to digest, it would be as if it was a... But, I mean, more or less, that capsule, I think the reason why we're both drawn to it is just the ease of going down the esophagus into the digestive tract. Well, you know, I, I did try something like that. This is probably 20 years ago. Uh, there, I don't know if they still make them anymore, but they made, one of the companies made a product called Something Bites. And they were like, uh, they were made for different kinds of lizards and things. They were bright colors. 
they were like little cubes of gelatin. Are you familiar with that product? Maybe, maybe yeah, I remember that in, I think T-Rex used to I manufacture that or, or so something the, like that. Yeah. The gelatin yeah. capsules were pretty stiff. And so uh, they, they made some, I think, for leopard geckos or monitors. And I figured, well, you know, those are uh, protein eating, you know, animal bug eating, uh, mice eating animals. So maybe the uh, nutrition would be okay for a snake. So I did take some of those and I cut them into strips and I did shove some down a few baby corn snakes just to see what would happen, but they didn't seem to digest them really well. They sat there like a lump for a long time. And uh, I guess they digested them eventually because it didn't kill them, but it didn't seem to be satisfactory either. But maybe there would be some sort of a recipe using that kind of gelatin. I even tried it myself using different uh, uh, ratios of, you know, like a Knox gelatin and stuff like that. And all the stuff I made was too soft. I, I couldn't get it to go down. I think it would take a, a commercial uh, manufacturer to make it right. But I tried. So, so one of the things that's happening right now is we're learning about the innovation that you had to come up with back in the day that today we take complete advantage of. Um, it, it, it must have been interesting to be a keeper and you have to deal with the, the, the thermal husbandry of your reptile and you didn't have a herb stat. Like you just had to deal with the fact that this room gets this temperature, you know, figure out lights and cables and all that kind of jazz. Whereas it, it today we don't, seem, don't think about that it, <laughs> stuff. It does seem kind of funny when I, I, I'm on quite a few forums on Facebook for various different kinds of reptiles. And I'll be seeing them talk about you. You absolutely have to have the thermostat and all this kind of stuff. And uh, basically, I still use the same system I used in the 80s because it works. I, I've never actually <laughs> used thermostats because I know if my room is about this temperature, then these cables are going to be that temperature. And, of course, they're only in one small area. So the rest, it's a gradient that they can get on and off as they want to. Uh, I have melted a few plastic cages early on with experiments, but now I don't anymore. So, yeah, it's been exciting. Back when I first started, uh, my vet, that I had uh, uh, dogs and cats and horses at the time. He said, well, I'll give you whatever kind of prescription you need for your reptiles. Just please don't bring them into the office. And so... All of us back then had to kind of learn to make with what we could either get through our cat and dog vet or, or from the feed store or, or whatever. And so we, we kind of learned to develop our own techniques. I, I think I might have been the first one, at least I don't know of anybody else, who did the trial and error thing with the um, aspirating retained eggs uh, from corn snakes and other colubrids. And uh, I was kind of surprised that it worked as well as it did because I, I really thought it could cause sepsis. Uh, actually, you know, introducing a needle through the side of the skin and into the egg and withdrawing the contents. But to my knowledge, I never had a snake die from it, and I've been doing it since the 90s. Uh, and of course, if the egg is close enough to the cloaca, you don't have to do that. You can just do it right through the cloaca if you can't just work it out. Uh, whereas on the other hand, I had a, a good reptile vet back in the 90s 
who knew as much as any reptile vet, which of course wasn't a lot back then. And uh, he did kill two of my uh, obsolete rat snakes by manipulating the eggs out really vigorously. And there was a lot of blood and 24 hours later, they were both dead. So, you oh, know, I, I kind of went with my method after that. So with the colubrids um, and the North American colubrids, obviously you're known for the, the corn snakes and you've mentioned Getula Kings and uh, Hondurans and Sinaloan milk snakes. And those. Is there a, is there a group of the, the North American species besides the rat snakes that you just really like um, or that you feel hasn't really been the, the potential for them hasn't been tapped yet? Uh, like, what are your thoughts on the other rat snakes or sorry, the other colubrids of North America? Well, I have kept a lot of them over the years. Uh, when I started cutting back uh, in the early 2000s, when the economy was starting to get kind of bad and people weren't buying as many. And uh, that's when I pretty much cut down most of those species and, and started keeping primarily corns and a few other non-native species. I also bred rhino rats back in the early 2000s. And, you know, we, we had some northern pines and a bunch of stuff, native and not native. Uh, I guess uh, I, I've been pretty amazed at the western hognose. I remember seeing the very first albinos. I remember they were $1,600 at Daytona back in 2000 eight or I, I forget just when it was, but something like that when we were still in Florida. Uh, and boy, they really surprised me. I really didn't think that they had all these colors in them. Uh, if, it, if this would have been the Easterns and Southerns, I wouldn't have been as surprised because they seem to have brighter colors, uh, although they're even more of a pain to feed. But uh, the, uh, I, the Westerns, I am pretty amazed. And, and people yeah, seem I'm rather to partial like, to them myself. Well, I, you know, I, I like to analyze people. I've always been a bit of a psychologist at heart. And uh, Bill came up with the hat band test way back in the 90s. Uh, it, when, when people were breeding different things, that, for instance, uh, for a while, children's pythons got uh, uh, people excited. But it was because, uh, because uh, they were rare, not because they were beautiful. So Bill came up with this hat band test, and he said, uh, when a new species starts getting uh, popular and, and more available, the, uh, the test of whether it'll stay popular once it becomes more common, not as expensive, is if it would make a pretty hat band, then it's going to be popular at whatever price it is, even if it becomes common and cheaper. Whereas some of the uh, brown snakes that people are all excited about because they're rare and expensive, they won't be as excited when they're not rare and expensive. And, and that does kind of hold true a lot. I would agree on that one. Um, I mean, for myself, I, I went down the road and it was my natural curiosity with the Laffey David eye. And here in the United States, I was the first person to breed them here. And I bought those from Cameron when they first came in as wild caught animals. But the interest level on them was very little from the Capybara, even though, I mean, they just look like a viper. You know, if you look at them from a side view, 
but there was just no interest in the animals purely because people didn't understand the natural biology of the animal where mm-hmm. that's my nerd inner. And, um, <clears throat> but because it was a brown snake and didn't have any bright color to them, they weren't a popular species. True. And I have to admit, I'm definitely attracted by bright colors and cool patterns too. Mm-hmm. That's that, that latent artist in me. I, but I am a little saddened by, by the fact that, that people that I, uh, well, Bill always likes to call them deli cup herpers, of which I'm partially <laughs> one. Uh, and uh, I, the being divorced from nature, it, it's got good and bad points. Now that it's gone mainstream, a lot of people don't even know what continent their, their particular reptile is from let alone anything 100%. else about it. Yep. State. I, I remember somebody came into a Herb Society meeting once when we had a show and tell, and they had a, a Savannah monitor, and uh, they were just supposed to tell some basic stuff about it, what it eats and so forth. And we were prompting them with questions, but they didn't know what continent it came from. They didn't know anything about it, uh, even though they obviously loved it and were taking great care of it. So on the one hand, I do feel that becoming mainstream and becoming many captives, uh, many generations of captive breeding, in some cases has domesticated them and made them more like dogs and cats and has them not really impacting wild animals, except uh, that people are less likely to kill them in the wild and, and more likely to appreciate the wild ones if they have a pet, whatever, and they're not scared of it. But um, it's, it's got the plus of not removing as many from the wild, but it's got the minus of people not seeing any connections whatsoever anymore from their, you know, five different morphs interconnected of whatever species it is. And the one that's still out there and whether it's in the United States or Africa or wherever it is. So I can see both sides of the mainstreaming of the hobby. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's kind of a, a very interesting point of this podcast, some of the different YouTubes um, that have gone out there is, you know, from a lot of this, we're trying to present not only the natural history of some of these different species, but also try to provide the knowledge of how some of these animals have come to the hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, all three of us here, we didn't have the internet to really do this type of research at that point in time. We were really driven by, you know, natural curiosity um, and the biology of the animals themselves to really understand that species and how we can actually develop them in herpeticulture. Um, But maybe it has gotten too far, if you will. And I don't want to say demoralizing the animal, but maybe detaching from some of their natural biology as we keep those species in the hobby. I, yeah. and maybe I got way too deep. I've, I've, <laughs> well, I've, I've thought about it a lot. Uh, and on the one hand, I, I, and I, I'm trying to be impartial and look at it just logically and not too emotionally. On the one hand, if you have a cat or a dog, you don't necessarily need to know how they evolved and, you know, what their closest cousins in the wild do and don't do. And, you know, 
in order to take care of it and appreciate it and have a really healthy cat or dog. So I can see that point also. If you have a if you have an albino corn snake, you don't really need to know anything about corn snakes in the wild in order to have a happy, healthy corn snake any more than dog or cat. But it does add another dimension and it gives you sometimes some insight if you do have some problems about searching for what the answer might be. I remember when uh, when the internet first really became a thing that you could use at your in your own house, uh, looking up uh, weather statistics, climate statistics in various different countries and areas and mountaintops and so forth for animals that I either had or I was interested in just because I thought, how cool is this that I can see what's the highest temperature and the lowest temperature and how, how often it rains and how often they have droughts and uh, all of this information at your fingertips might give me an insight into why my whatever isn't eating as well as I think they should or they're not breeding or, you know, whatever. So there is so much information available if people want to make use of it. On that same line of thought, was there anything in the, the 80s that people thought, like, this is the way you keep the snakes, that now today, we you now know we, were, we weren't quite right? Like, the Python people oftentimes talk about how they were of the impression that the hot spots had to be like 100 to 110 degrees, and then you couldn't let the temperature drop below 80, and now we know you need to have like an isolated spot that gets to 90, but your ambient should be hovering around 80, which is like completely different with, with colubrids. Was there anything along those lines that, or is it pretty much just the way we did it back then is the way it's done now? Um, I think, uh, well, it's, it's hard to remember offhand. I think some things have changed, but they've mostly been a gradual enlightenment rather than revelations. Uh, I think mm -hmm. maybe uh, it's kind of funny because back in the uh, 90s or so when Americans really got into the, the morphs and especially colubrid uh, production, mass production, uh, we've always been good at that, whether we're talking about widgets or snakes or anything else. The Europeans, <laughs> which we did get to go visit a few of them and, and uh, got to travel a bit and see how other people did it. They were always more in into the uh, the habitat and a piece of nature and trying to make it as natural as possible. And uh, Philippe de Vogeli was one of the people who was ahead of his time in the U.S. and trying to promote that sort of thing even back in the 90s and, and 80s. Heck, I think even in the 70s, he was trying to play with some of that stuff. And back then, uh, the American herpers were just like, I want to make more. I want to make more different colors. I want to make, yeah. and of course, racks are the easiest way to keep large numbers. And it is interesting now, uh, myself too, and a lot of other people are kind of rethinking this a little bit in recent years and thinking, well, maybe not always is more better. Maybe sometimes uh, less is more, but with better quality, uh, especially now that it's semi-retired and I don't have the great numbers. I still have some of my animals in racks, but more and more I'm trying to put some of them in, in display things where I can actually appreciate them. I have my, uh, I just have one pair of Amazon tree bows now. I used, I used to breed a lot of them and for several generations, they're one of my favorites because like corn snakes, they're highly variable. 
But out here, they don't do as well in Arizona. And uh, I've got them in one of those big Exoterra three by three foot cages mm -hmm. with some plants. And uh, finally, I put an actual humidifier right there in the cage. And I've got this humidifier on a timer now. So it comes on for one hour, four times a day. So four times a day, it turns into a steamy uh, Amazon jungle. And then it dries out in between. And uh, uh, now they can shed again. It took me a while to figure that out. Also, you can't buy cypress mulch out here, at least not for any reasonable price. But I eventually figured out that, that cocoa, you can also get wet and it won't get all moldy like aspen. So living in Arizona the last 10 years or so, I've definitely had to relearn some things that worked in Florida don't necessarily work out here. Well, on that, that line of thought, what do you keep currently? Obviously, you have the Amazons and the tricolors, but... Yeah, I have one pair of Amazons. Like I have about uh, oh, a dozen adult corns, which are pretty much all uh, some type of Okatee-related thing, whether they're actual Okatees or Ultramel Okatees or Albino Okatees. I did just get some, uh, some uh, uh, palmetto corns from a friend this year. And uh, I've been thinking about some things that are a little bit more adapted to arid and semi-arid areas. So I just got a pair from the same friend of uh, uh, Hypo Stillwater Bull Snakes, something nice about nice. it. Uh, and, and I just got from uh, Justin Mitchum some, uh, some really pretty morphs of uh, some Western hognose. Uh, uh, some of them are just beautiful. Uh, again, uh, the bright colors, the reds, the oranges, the yellow. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I'll be playing around with those. He sent me some non-feeders too to play with to try different techniques that I use and see if it gets going on any of them. Of course, my freezer has an assortment of uh, not only regular old mice and rats and chicks, but also some toads and some uh, some fish and some. I'm going to get frog legs next time I go to the Asian market. So you know, a little bit of this, a little bit. Oh, I've, got, I've got some wild mm -hmm. mice that. Uh, found just hit on the uh, on the uh, road that we'll use for scenting. So, I, you know, anybody who's playing with stuff needs to have that in their freezer and have a spouse that is good with that. Tolerable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. uh, so I also have uh, I have my tricolor hogs, which I, I really love those little things. I and uh, I had a pair of rhino rats. I I lost the female this year, so I am going to sell the male. And, uh, and I have a trio of uh, mandarin rats I've been playing with the last few years, but I think I'm going to uh, thin those out because although the, the tricolor hogs are also fossorial, these are very fossorial. You don't get to see how pretty they are most of the time. And they're still a little picky at eating. Uh, what else do I have? I've got some blue tongue skinks. Boy, I produced a lot of those this year. I only have two females, but they can produce a lot. Uh, and uh, got one pair of albino ball pythons. We go to some reptile shows and do python pictures. Um, uh, Bill just is down to one snake now. He just has a, a sidewinder that was raised up for years by a friend, and now he's had it for years. Uh, I think that's uh, most of what I can think of. Not a lot anymore compared to what I used to have. Don't have any kingfish wow. anymore. No milk snakes. 
But the tricolor frogs are kind of like milk snakes, so they take up that niche. Yeah. Well, I, I need to real quick give a shout out to Justin because he's actually going to be the guy that's helping me out with the morph chapter of the Hogno Snake book. So, well, he, oh, there you man. go. He knows his stuff. He was, uh, when he first proposed to do a trade because his family wanted to get some blue tongue skinks and, and he wanted to play with tricolor hognose. So he proposed a trade, and I hadn't kept uh, a Western hognose since the 1980s. Uh, and then I didn't have that many of them. So <clears throat> I've seen the morphs, but I haven't studied them or anything. Man, he wrote me pages and pages of stuff about these things and uh, so patient and so knowledgeable. If he does that with all of his customers, he's a really great guy to deal with. Uh, and, and part of the reason he sent me these non-feeders, uh, just for the heck of it, is that if I can find anything new with fresh eyes to get them going easier than the things he's tried, then he'll have some new things to try too. I was talking with him about the ferret food tube feeding and all that. So, uh, yeah, if you want some Western hog nose, I'd say check in with him if he still has any left. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So I know Zach wants to talk about this, and Kathy, I think you want to talk about it too. I think we're ready to talk about tricolors. Yeah, right? I'm ready yeah. to talk about tricolors. <laughs> yeah, my new favorite thing. I've been breeding those for about uh, uh, five or six years now, I think. And uh, when I first produced them, hardly anybody in the U.S. was breeding them. There were a few people. And uh, the Facebook forum that I was on at the time had almost all European breeders there. They've been doing it longer than we have. Uh, so I, it just in the last few years since I breed, since I started, though, it's exploded. And now they're at the reptile shows and everything. Uh, the prices still stayed up there, but they are very prolific, but very short-lived. Uh, so uh, if, if the short-lived part doesn't bother people, yeah, I mean, you just have to raise up your own replacements. They're a live fast, die young species, like uh, like those uh, uh, Chameleocalyptratus, the uh, the Yemen, uh, the veiled mm -hmm. chameleons. Yeah, they have that same strategy. Yeah, with, with with their short. So, for the listeners, would you say that an eight year old tricolor is ancient. geriatric? No, ancient, yeah. <laughs> I've never had one. <laughs> uh, I. I uh, when I first started breeding in the first couple of years, and it was still pretty new. By the way, we did have these at Glades Herp in the 90s, wild-caught specimens that we imported. Not many, but we couldn't. They were adults. We could not get those things to eat. And um, we sold some of them. A few of them lived, but there were very high losses on them. Uh, apparently, we and whoever else imported them at least got enough to people that kept them that eventually they came around, but the wild caught ones were awful to work with. Uh, but I, I queried people on the Facebook forum and uh, the longest that I ever had anybody tell me that they ever had one was eight years. And that was like one or two, seven was really, really old. Six, five to six was kind of average. Uh, the oldest I've ever had one still produce eggs was about four and the oldest male was maybe four and a half to five and i've never had one go past five uh so really uh, but they do start breeding early uh they they eat like yes. crazy they grow like crazy um i've had females producing eggs at about uh, 
uh, one and a half years old, and they were perfectly big enough and capable enough. Uh, and they go in, they're, they're, they're like parakeets or cockatiels. They'll just like clutch after clutch after clutch. So you've got to try to protect them from themselves. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that's one of the things I went into great depth with the, with the book chapter. Because I, when I first bred them, my animals were two years old and I put them together. And I know Matt's bred them. So everybody here has bred them. And we've all experienced that moment when you put the male in with the female and 30 seconds later, they are locked. Like, I don't, I don't <laughs> think I've ever tried to breed any species of snake that went from not knowing each other to copulating in less than a minute. Like it's, it's insane how quick they just, the male's just on it and she's receptive and they're copulating. And then once that happens, you have, like you said, clutch after clutch after clutch after clutch um the first with, with the <laughs> go for it the first few years i was it was kind of an experiment because we didn't know that many people uh the first year i ever did it i had um, a good female and my male had kinks in him and he just wasn't breeding or anything uh so i took my female over uh over to uh, uh west texas and uh and uh, did did a breeding loan and uh, we uh, we got good babies from it, really nice ones. And we were kind of feeling our, our way around it uh, and uh, just trying to figure out what to do. So we were putting them together every time they laid eggs. We ate a few times and we put males and females back together. And I did that for the first few years and they produced a lot of clutches, like four or five. And uh, the last couple of years, I wanted to see if maybe not putting them together after the first time would uh, slow them down or if it would just result in a whole lot of infertile eggs. And, uh, and it did slow them down somewhat. This year I only bred once. At, I breed a little bit late so that uh, in order to stop them, what I do is cool them down yeah. and stop feeding them. And if you start them too early in the year, you can't do that early enough before they start to get thin. I. Uh, so this year I just uh, bred them, I think uh, in March or April or something like that. And it does take a long time to incubate the eggs. So I didn't get babies until August. And, uh, and, and one of the females did produce like four or five clutches. They're done now. But each of the other of the three females produced one or two clutches. So that did slow them down. Interesting. What was the age of the female that produced the four to five versus the ones that produced the one to two? She was, she was a year older than the ones that only produced the uh, one. A year or older? Two. Yeah. The, uh, the one that produced a lot of clutches, she would be three now, I think. And the other ones are two. Hmm. Very cool. So with the tricolors, what, let's start with babies and work our way up. So okay. I have had the great joy of trying to get these things fresh out of the egg to eat anything. Um, and I'm, I'm aware of your article from 2008. And I obviously chatted directly with you in April for the book. Mm -hmm. But would you mind just going over how you get the, 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 the babies to eat? Because for the listeners that have not seen a fresh out of the egg tricolor hognose snake, they have very tiny heads. <laughs> like... They're, well, they're quite small. Yeah, so but they're very stretchy compared to a corn snake. They're yes. very stretchy. I uh, so uh, whenever I start with a new species, I always 
uh, do fairly extensive notes and weights and things like that for the first couple of years until I have a good feel for it. And so the first couple of years, uh, I did the tricolors. I weighed all the babies out of hatching, and they ranged from four to eight grams, uh, which for contrast, most of my corn snake babies are usually about 10 or 12 grams. And I occasionally have a baby corn snake that's only eight grams, but that's unusual. So, But they're stout. An eight gram corn snake is going to be longer and skinnier than an eight gram uh, tricolor. And, uh, and they're stretchier than corns. So anyway, usually most of them, sometimes not those four gram ones, but most of them are seven to eight grams and they can eat a newborn pinky mouse. And uh, they like thawed mice much better than live. They seem to be scared by the live. So uh, generally after they've shed their skin, I put them in a little deli cup with just a thawed pinky and that's all, nothing else. And uh, usually half or so will eat on the first attempt. Uh, they're much easier to start feeding than Western hognose are. Uh, and uh, usually half the ones that don't eat the first time will eat the second time. Uh, and uh, sometimes there's a bunch of little tricks, the ones that don't eat. Uh, sometimes if you either uh, brain the pinky or cut it in half uh, uh, and confine it in the deli cup, sometimes that'll work. Uh, and then if those things don't work after a few weeks, then I start scenting. Weirdly enough, and I guess this seems to be the case for Westerns too, uh, scenting with salmon or tuna fish sometimes works. I don't know where they find those in the wild, <laughs> but it seems to sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and sometimes other weird stuff, you know, like chicken or something weird will work. I, what else have I tried? Of course, I try to keep a toad or two in the freezer because that seems to be natural. Yep. As, as an interesting little aside, uh, anybody who's kept uh, the adults probably will notice that when the females are in feeding frenzy, which is pretty much any time during the breeding season, uh, the way they move, I've noticed, reminds me a lot of garter snakes and water snakes going for their food. They slash from side to side. Uh, as if they're trying to get fish, yep. frogs, or something like that. And uh, when I first started, I uh, I just handed them the food like I do to corn snakes and so forth. But since they are rear fanged, even though I've never heard of anybody who needed medical attention, I still try to avoid getting bitten by them. <clears throat> so I use uh, I use forceps for the females. But the way they slash back and forth makes me think that their feeding preferences are probably much like. Uh, garter snakes and water snakes, yeah, and uh, and so those are some of the things I scent with, and a lot of times toad scenting will work. Uh, if all else fails and and they don't eat scented food, which is various a very small percentage, most of them will eat scented food. Once they're eating scented food, it's only a matter of time till you get them to eat unscented, so that's not a problem. Uh, they I saw, I saw this on a forum uh, and, on Facebook, and it. It does seem to work if you have a lot of patients. If you take a very small pinky or even just the front part of the pinky, but dry it off really well because your fingers get all wet and slimy and it's hard to handle them, and you hold the snake up in one hand and you hold the pinky up yeah. the other hand and you push the nose of the pinky kind of gently but firmly into the nose of the baby tricolor, 
uh, if you're patient enough, sooner or later, the baby snake will usually open its mouth and uh, it will usually bite the pinky. And if you're lucky, it sometimes will just start chewing it and chew it down or it'll drop it and you have to do it over again. Uh, but I, I've used that tease feeding method with corns since the 80s and corns will really try your patience about grab it. You make the, you make them mad, you hit them on the tail and then they turn around and and uh, will sometimes grab it from you and then toss it as far as they can. But if you have enough patience, eventually they might eat it. But surprisingly, if either the uh, baby tricolor won't do that, won't eat it down, or you just don't have enough patience, it is surprising that that little tiny head, you can take a newborn pinky that's been frozen and thawed, and you can get that nose in the mouth by twisting it and turning it, and uh, you have to keep drying your hands because they get all slimy. And you just kind of patiently and quietly work it in there. And their necks are so stretchy, it'll stretch right out. And I stick my finger kind of down his throat and just work it down there until it's all in his neck. And then I massage it. I have not tried tube feeding them yet because they're small. And I wasn't sure about the tube going down there. But I seem to have one litter this year that's not eating as well as usual. So I may try that just to see how it works. Kathy, have you ever tried just cooling them for a short, brief period and then raising their temperatures to get feeding? No, I haven't. Uh, I, I did that uh, years ago when I bred uh, Arizona Mountain Kings back in Florida. And uh, that seemed mm -hmm. to help with them and I guess some other montane species. I, I don't know if it would help with them. I I can tell you, uh, which is probably interesting because not too many people, not too many Americans have gone down where they're actually from. But about three to four years ago, Bill actually went down with a local friend to Paraguay uh, to the little town of Philadelphia, which is not spelled the same way our Philadelphia is. And they actually have been collected from there before. So he knows that that is their habitat. We didn't actually see any live or dead. But he did go to the habitat where they had been collected, and he did take pictures and took some notes and stuff about what it looked like. The pictures that he took reminded me a lot of kind of how it looks like in parts of South Florida. And uh, apparently they do have seasonal dry and wet times, uh, mm -hmm. which would probably explain their live fast, uh, die young, uh, you know, produce a lot in the meantime. Uh, so I don't think it ever really gets cold down there. Uh, it does get wetter and drier. Uh, but I mean, anything is interesting to give a try just to see. I've had so few that wouldn't eat yeah. that it hasn't been a big problem for me. Yeah. No, and, and the only reason I even bring this up is even talking about the Fitzingeri is Stan had even talked to Bill Lamar about this too as well since Bill had found some in the wild and he is under the perception that they do go through a short bromation period hmm. and, and and where are they Stan, where is the uh man i'd have to look that up to be honest with you for but one of the problems with the fitzinger is sometimes they won't start feeding on their own mm -hmm. uh, as hatchlings and 
I always have gone to this perspective that where sometimes species will do better in different areas of the United States too, as well, oh, based yeah. upon where they're naturally found. And some people will be extremely successful with certain animals based on barometric pressure just across the board. Um, yeah. But it's something I think sometimes we, we take for granted with some of these species too, especially because we say, well, no, they're from South America, but like you said, I mean, you will see different temperate zones, wet seasons, um, especially where you, you may get colder temperatures depending on where they're actually getting into. The, the climate in Paraguay, um, and I know Philadelphia well, haven't been there, but I've read everything I could possibly read about it and will go there before I die, God willing. Cool. Uh, but I I basically figured out in, re- in working on the book that, um, that Paraguay is... I think an analogous state to Paraguay is um, coastal South Carolina mm-hmm. because they, they do have a winter, but it's like the kind of winter you get in Charleston, South Carolina. Like there, there are records of it getting into the, you know, it will freeze there once every five years, maybe oh, yeah. two or three nights, but most winters down there, you're talking about lows, in the low 50s, upper 40s, and then highs during the day of the upper 60s, low 70s. Because I started brewmating after I learned all that. Uh, false water cobras are, are my snake. And I thought, well, maybe I should be brewmating these, giving them a soft brewmation, not throwing them down to 50 and keeping them there like we would a North American snake, but just basically <clears throat> letting them dip down into the low 60s at night and then warming them up to the mid to upper 70s during the day. And when I did that in breeding them i i increased my clutch sizes by about 20 percent um and both of my females double clutched uh and 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 that's double clutching seems to be a dipsatted thing like like the mooseranas will do it the tricolor hogs do it the bear and i will do it um but it, but with with the the paltures you know on paltry they just seem to be wired like you said to just pump out babies <laughs> like when, when you get it so they're almost like an r selected uh species when, when you get them feeding the babies how what is your feeding frequency once you have them them going because that's a question that i i've actually wondered well i've seen feed them once a week i've seen feed them every three days i've seen feed them every five days like what's your and i've actually tried approach? all of those things to see what works <laughs> Uh, with my corn snakes and most other North American colubrids, it's pretty much a once a week thing. But because these seem to be a live fast, die young species, I decided that uh, I want to let them grow to their potential as quickly as they can. And uh, I have fed them as as often as every three to four days and as little as every week. And my feeling is that every three to four days is optimum uh, because if they don't get up to their breeding size at a pretty young age, you know, they're already old by the time that they're three or four. So I, uh, yeah. I, I tend to do that with the adults. Um, I usually feed the, if, if it's not during breeding time uh, and the females are not thin, I do a once a week, like I do with my corn snakes and for the males too, during the breeding season, I try to feed the females once in between the once a week feeding. So they're getting it every three or four days like the babies are. And the females, oh, they are, they're like shark frenzy feeding. 
uh, they just they start mm-hmm. slashing around. They'll bite themselves. They'll bite you. They'll bite anything uh, just to get that food in them. Uh, and, and an interesting thing for people, because they are very fossorial, and so I keep them on cocoa bedding, or you could use cypress if that's available to you, and I dampen one end of it, and I leave the rest dry, and that way they can move from, from damp to dry. Uh, whenever I see them on top, and it's not they're not totally burrowed in, it usually means they are hungry. And watch out. They're, if you've ever yes. seen Getula king snakes, they're like the sandworms on dune leaping out at you. And so mm-hmm. it's... Yeah. So, so with the diet, uh, have you tried feeding them anything besides rodents? Um, or is the rodent only diet kind of your standard? It has been fare? a rodent only diet. I had I had a couple of big females that were able to eat some day old chicks that I had, and they did. They didn't seem to like them a lot, but they would eat them. I actually I have a friend who raises quail and I was going to ask him this year for some baby quail just to try on them and see how they like that. But uh, I haven't actually offered them amphibians or, or even fish. Uh, I, I suspect that that would be natural for them and it'd probably be good for them if yeah. that was available. One of the things that I'm very curious about, and I'm, I'm personally going to explore this and I'm upset that I didn't have time to do it before uh, the book went to the publisher, but I did a deep, deep, deep dive on the whole complex of tricolor hognose snakes because I, I know there's Xenodon, um, I can't say this name, Mat- Matagrosiensis, uh-huh. uh, and I think it's Xenodon semisinctus, uh, and then there's Pulcher. Uh, but when there were a couple studies done with the other species where they were able to actually catch enough of them to look at diet. And what was very interesting to me is that in the wild, there has not been a rodent taken from the, the gastrointestinal system of any of these tricolor hognose snakes. And, and it seems like they actually are feeding on a heavy reptile, reptile, frog, and then interestingly, lizard snake egg diet. They ate a lot of squamate eggs, which was kind of interesting. But I've, I've wondered if if you raised a group on like a reptilink frog sausage, would, would those animals live longer? Uh, and I don't think they're going to live like five, ten years longer, but you might get another year or two out of them. Because um, I had an animal that just died, randomly died, and I had no idea what was wrong with this guy. It was a male. And so I brought it up here to the university, and we have all the equipment to do a necropsy. So I did that. And what was really interesting to me is when I looked at the, the snake from the outside, it looked healthy as could be. It was growing like any tricolor should. Uh, it was at a year old, I think we were pushing like seven or eight inches and you know how stout they are. But when I cut it open, it was just loaded with fat deposits. There were, they were all along the gastrointestinal, you know, where the fat bodies are. Sure. Um, and it was, really striking because i had put the animal into the refrigerator for you know to spend the night so all the fat had congealed like it does on bacon so you could really tell there's a lot of fat in there and it was it was kind of like an aha moment to me um but like i said i i don't have any babies right now uh so i can't test that theory but that's that's a little mini side fun project that i'm gonna 
give a go at. I know there's a guy named Roy Blogit who wrote an article for Herpetoculture magazine on tricolors and his approach to keeping them is really interesting because he kind of goes all out with the naturalistic keeping and, and he gives them substrate and he gives them UVB radiation and you know all that kind of stuff. And what was interesting was that like he has images, I, I have them, <laughs> of these guys doing cryptic basking in the UV light. So they'll they're down in the substrate like we know, but they'll actually do the thing where they like raise a coil or two, um, but keep the rest of their body so you know under the substrate. Uh-huh. So they're kind of sitting there in that UVB beam. Um, and he's moved, that is I believe he's done the thing where he's moved the beam and they'll go over to there. Um, but he's got, a, he's tried feeding them these sausages and he said, they'll down them like crazy. Um, so well, that is that's something that I'm going to give a go with. I, I had kind of forgotten that they made those sausages. I, I, I had tried, uh, the, uh, the rodent sausage, uh, equivalent mm-hmm. way back in the nineties for the corn snake book. And they ate those great. And then I had read that they came out with a, a frog type one, but I never tried them. What is the smallest that they make them for what size snake? They are, they are very small. Um, in fact, they are what we use here at the school because we breed a lot of Western hogs. Uh, when we have troublesome feeders with the Western hogs, we have the smallest size reptilink frog. Um, and we also have actually fed the Western hogs, the reptilinks that are made out of geckos. They're made out of the invasive geckos that are in um, Florida. Hmm. And they're kind of gross. I don't know if anybody's, if you haven't used them, you, you like thaw them out and they're this like gelatinous mass that is barely constituted. <laughs> like if you leave them in there a little too long, they kind of like turn into a puddle. Um, but the snakes, the, the frog feeders absolutely go ballistic over them um so that was one aspect of tricolor care that i was thinking about maybe exploring a little bit you have much better luck at getting the babies to eat than me though because i just for lack to be blunt i suck at it i can't get them to like to go matt sent me one that i um that i was i was doing the tuna trick and it was eating and then the little thing just stopped um it's eaten some rat tails it's the goofiest little animal because I, I get it started, like you said, uh, and then I just put it down, and it just does the rest. It just forgets about the whole eating on its own. Like, I don't know, that whole assist feeding thing. If I didn't assist feed it, it well, probably would be gone. So, With, with enough uh, with enough repetitions, I'm sure it will. You know, I'm yeah. actually kind of surprised. Uh, the, there, there's a few, a few Facebook forums for tricolor uh, hogs, and uh, one in particular has... I think maybe almost 2000 people or over 2000 people on it from all over the world. And uh, I use that as a good resource, especially when I was starting because uh, with all those different people, you get different experiences and uh, especially Mm -hmm. it's good for longevity and the feeding and all that. But I haven't heard or haven't read anybody actually mentioning that they used the, uh, the frog sausages. A few of them have used frogs and toads, but not the sausages and I kind of forgot about those. I, I should try that. Oh, uh, th- th- they, they like, I fed, I have some at home. Um, I lost my mail, so I'm just waiting for him, for my current mail to grow up to age, but uh, they will definitely hammer them. <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about with the dune worms and the slashing back and forth. And yeah, uh, I've actually had one animal that wouldn't take a pinky 
it went on this strange feeding strike with a pinky and I, I thought out one of the reptilinks and just smeared it all over the pinky and then took the exact same pinky it refused and put it near it and it you know aggressively attacked it and then consumed it and i did that a couple more times now it's eating mice perfectly fine uh so with, with your setups then what what temps do you keep them at because i think that's an aspect of tricolor care that's kind of important for people to understand well i have tried some experimentation and uh, when i first got my first babies i set them up in the in the house area that's not the reptile room where i keep it about uh about 77 78 uh in the summer and about 72 in the winter and i put a heat cable there so there was a, a nice warm spot i i use a thick bedding of cocoa so that they can burrow in there and be surrounded by warmth and uh I, I observed them over a period of time and they virtually never went on the warm side even when they were full of food they usually didn't go on the warm side they generally seem to like to be cooler than corn snakes uh, so now i have the adults in my reptile room and generally uh, i keep that in about the low occasionally mid 80s during the day uh, it during during the warm months of the year and at night it gets down to the same temperature as my house about 77 78 because i i uh, leave the door open and, and the the temperature gets to be the same then mm -hmm. uh, and they seem to be real comfortable with that i don't i don't have a heat gradient for them now the uh, the eggs seem to like to incubate at a cooler temperature than corn snake eggs I've had good success sometimes putting them in the reptile room on the lowest rack so that during the day it might get into the low 80s and at night into the upper 70s. And I've also had good luck with them, uh, keeping them in my house where it stays 77, 78 all the time. Uh, it appears from what a lot of people who have said, I, I, I don't use incubators. I don't need them for colubrid eggs and never have used them. Uh, but people who do use incubators have mentioned that if you keep them consistently at 80 or or much above 80 you get less hatching properly and more uh anomalies and things like that uh they do take a while to hatch i uh, usually they're closer to three months than two months usually like two months and yeah, and then weeks or something like that and they also like to pip and just stay in the egg for a little while. Forever. That, that was... Forever. And uh, yeah. I, in the first <laughs> one, the last one, I, you know, can take a long time. So usually what I do is um, if all have uh, hatched and at least stuck their heads out, except for one or two, then I'll usually slip that last egg or, or two and then just leave them there. Uh, and one thing that I've seen with them that I have not seen with other colubrids, if they stay in their egg too long, uh, the egg will become translucent and you can actually see the pattern and the color of the snake through the egg. I've never seen that with other colubrids. When that happens, you may already be too late. They might be dead or about to die. So you better open it up quick. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, if you if you have forid flies like so much of the country does, you know those little fruit fly looking carrion flies, uh, yeah. they can be really bad on baby snakes that take a long time to hatch out. They don't bother the eggs if they're not bad. If they're good, they they don't bother them. But once they hatch, they'll get in and they'll lay eggs on the egg goo, 
And uh, those maggots will, I mean, the uh, eggs will turn in maggots in less than 24 hours and they'll start eating the snake's umbilical from the inside out. So uh, if you have those in your egg hatching uh, place, there's several ways to combat it. I mean, you can try to exclude them from the egg laying thing, but you probably won't be successful if you have many. The uh, little forehead flies love uh, light, UV, and uh, moisture. So if you keep your egg laying, egg medium, which I, I usually use perlite, but sometimes I've used vermiculite, they both work. Perlite stays drier on the top and it isn't, is not as hospitable to the Ford flies as wetter things. And if you put them in a dark place, the Ford flies don't thrive as much as they do in a bright place. And uh, so the least amount of moisture nice. and the least amount of light and equals the least amount of Ford flies. I actually think that this has a lot to do with colubrids because I hate Ford flies. <laughs> Did, have, have you, do you have any other little tricks for just killing them in mass? Cause yes, yeah, uh, that's one that that's go, go for it. Florida, this is the gold were, of the episode. Go in Florida, they were horrendous. What was that? In Florida, they were horrendous mm -hmm. because of the heat and the humidity and everything. And so I tried a lot of different things in Florida before I ever kept tricolors uh, and I, I found that um, because they're attracted to UV light, they will go in those UV fly killers. I didn't know if those ones, the zappers would work with the electricity because they're so little. So I got mm -hmm. one of them, which are hard to find now, that has a UV light and it has a fan in it and it has a, a thing of water to drown them in. You put some uh, dish soap yeah. in there and it drowns them. And I got a lot of them with that. And also, if you go to the feed store and you buy any one of those uh, stable fly control things like Blue Diamond or Golden Malloran, mm -hmm. those, they're poisons. Uh, and uh, you have to put them, of course, where there's no cats or dogs or small children roaming around that might get into them. But uh, you can put them in something that other animals can't get into, but the flies can, something container with holes in it or whatever. And if you get it wet, oh man, they will just flock to it and you'll have piles and piles of dead ones on there. So none of these things will get rid of the forward flies, but they'll keep the numbers down. That's, that's fantastic. My, my method is much, much more primitive and much more disgusting. I, I realize that if you like leave a mouse, if you feed an animal a mouse, and it does the whole grab it, constrict it, and then you walk away, and it's like, yeah, no, puh, and then spits it out. If you leave that thing alone for two days and come back, it's a forward fly, disgusting, mass o maggot, flies, eggs, blah. So I started taking 20-ounce pop bottles, since I'm an ecologist, you know, I think trap, and basically made, cut the the lid of the trap or sorry, the lid of the bottle out and flipped it upside down and put it down into the bottle, making it cone trap. And then I would just chuck the dead mouse in the bottom of that thing and make this disgusting stew and then let it naturally attract them. And it ended up serving as a population sink because they're all laying their eggs on that dead mouse. Uh, and then I would shove those in a freezer and kill them. But while I like that, turns out that your spouse does not like having a bunch of 20 ounce Coke bottles around your house with dead rotten mice in them. So if there's 
because it makes your whole house smell like I know what it smells like, but, <laughs> um, yes. but actually, uh, I, the problem is the, those uh, eggs turn into maggots so quickly, like just yes. overnight, that you could actually be producing more if you're not quick about it. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas if you use those golden malarin or blue diamond or one of those poisons and make sure it's not accessible to other animals, you could use the same kind of trap that you made and, and get it a little bit wet. And yeah, yeah it, they won't get a chance to breed and produce more. They'll just die right there. Yeah, that's a much better, and much better method. Doesn't sting. I mean, it does smell, but not nearly as bad as dead mice. I'm going to stick to my glue traps. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what was the name of the company? I well, I don't know. Blue Diamond. Yeah, it, Blue Diamond. That's actually the brand name. I don't know the company. Blue Diamond, and there's another okay. one that's called Golden Malarin, M A L R I N. And you can get them from any any feed right. Awesome. Uh, well, back to more pleasant subjects, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, but but Ford flies. I mean, what. I did a lot of research with cryptosporidium and I'm going to flat out tell you they are a vector of the cryptospore. So keeping them under control is very important if you have a large collection because, uh, and Lord knows how many viruses they're bringing from one snake to the other. And we don't realize it uh, because it's really hard to identify a snake virus. Um, but anyway, uh, so I guess we're, we're, we're getting down to the end here. Uh, with the tricolor snakes, what do you see as the future? So, like, I put a post out on one of those groups because I'm writing the chapter. And um, I know with morphs, with the tricolor hogs, I, I was of the impression that there were a lot of morphs. And then I've come to learn that there really aren't morphs um, present. But there are definitely individual animals that are high black. And there are some animals where the white bands are wider than the red bands. And there's some animals that are high red. But that seems to all be a product of line breeding at this Exactly. Point. I you... think it's all selective breeding and just uh, pattern anomalies. I actually had some uh, a one male that hatched out that was almost all black and red with hardly any white. And uh, unfortunately, I lost that one before he ever bred. And I haven't produced another one like that. But I see pictures of people having similar things with either a lot of or very little and I think with time, selective breeding will make those really cool. But the only one that seems to be a recessive gene so far is uh, one they produce in Europe that they're calling hypoerythristic, which is really ugly. It's uh, dark, uh, mostly black, but not shiny black. It's uh, very little red, more like a dirty red with mostly black. Uh, I don't think it's very attractive, but it's the only one I know of that they say is a uh, uh, recessive traits so far. Mm. But more yep. probably possible. So, no, well, well, I guess the the final little piece here is in, in our podcast, we like to go full nerd and talk about the biology of the, the animals. And I, I do feel it necessary for the listeners to understand that while these animals look like hognose snakes, they are actually distantly related to our North American hognose snakes. They are a beautiful example of this thing we call conversion evolution. So think about a dolphin and a shark. They, they have rigid pectoral fins and a rigid dorsal fin, and uh, they appear to be the same, but one's a mammal, one's a fish. So with these two snakes, they both live in 
semi-arid to arid sandy environments. They both dig and they both eat amphibians. So when you have those evolutionary constraints acting on your phenotype, you're going to end up with a similar morphotype. And that's basically what's going on. But I do know, I, I, I follow those forums as well to try to get as much information as I can about these guys. And uh, there are quite a few people that just think that it's a hognose snake. Um, and, and they really are a very different snake. One of the things that I love about them is that they do mimicry with a with a coral snake that lives in South America, and it's a, it's a specific species of coral snake. It's the Argentinian coral snake. And what's crazy is if you've ever messed with a coral in the wild, uh, you know that they're frenetic, yep. <laughs> and they kind of do this crazy thing where they they flip their tail and they flip their head at the exact same time. And if you mess with a tricolor, their behavior is identical to mm -hmm. my current. Like that, before I realized i mean i knew that they were mimicking a coral but the, i remember the very first time i got mine out of the deli cup it was actually at the desk i'm sitting at right now and they did that like spaz thing they do it it immediately reminded me of the, the corals that i interacted with when i was in florida so they're just from a natural if you're a natural history based keeper try hogs are one of the I, I just don't think you can beat them because you get to see all these crazy behaviors um they do have this crazy life history that's different than most snakes. So if, if you're a nerdy snake keeper, definitely look into the tricolors. Uh, they're, they're, they're one of my top 10 favorite species to keep. So that's my two cents. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that is so true. And I noticed that, but what it also reminded me is, uh, you know, the Eastern coral snakes in Florida behave uh, spazzy like that too. And so do a lot of the milk snakes. Uh, I remember mm -hmm. I used to breed Honduran milks, and those Honduran milks uh, would just be totally spazzed out like eastern coral snakes. And then I, I didn't think that much about it, though, back when I had them. But then when I saw these uh, tricolor hogs acting the same way as the coral snakes and as the milk snakes, then I really started thinking about it. Wow, it's not just the color and pattern that they're mimicking. Mm-hmm. No, it, it's, they're just fantastic. It's funny you mentioned the Hondurans. I forgot to mention, I got my first pair of Hondurans in our little interlude. Um, I actually have a trio of them now. And I don't know why, but in my head, I thought they were just going to be these calm little <laughs> things. And I pulled them out of the deli cup and like the ones chewing on my knuckle and it's projectile musking. It wasn't just like a little bit of musk. <laughs> it's like... And then I thought, oh, this is just this individual. And then I pulled out the, the other one to check it out, and it did the exact same thing. I had no clue that they were um, borderline psychotic as neonates, <laughs> which if you, if you know, I like animals like that. So that just was endearing to me. That was not in any way, shape, or form a negative. I was giggling like a 10-year-old here in the office as they were gnawing on me. So anywho. Well, what was funny about those is uh, they hatch out so big, and the mm -hmm. babies yeah. – the babies were the ones that would just spaz out and they were so big and they're going spazzing out. And then, uh, I, and then I saw the same things with the baby tricolor hogs, but my adults don't do that. I mean, when they get, when the yeah. females get hungry, they get kind of like that, but it's a, it's a food thing, not just a behavior thing. The baby tricolors though, it's just their natural way of moving at least when they're threatened. Yeah. Okay. Well, this was fantastic. Any other questions you have, Matt? 
No, I, Kathy, thanks again for coming on and sharing a lot of the history of her, her pediculture and your keeping skills. I, I think it was a great episode to share the knowledge and the history. Yeah, we are honored to have had you on our podcast. I'm thrilled to death that we, we did this talk. Well, it was really fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. So if anybody wanted to get a hold of you, Kathy, how do you recommend that they, they find you if they if they want to chat or, or oh, if you have animals that you're interested a, in getting? I spend a fair amount of time on Facebook. And uh, although I'm kind of at the friend's limit for my, uh, my friend page, but occasionally somebody leaves and I get a new one. But they could follow me on Facebook. And I also, I'm on a whole lot of the uh, forums for corn snakes and tricolor hogs and, and uh, various different colubrid forums. So usually, usually you could tag me on most of those or find me there. And uh, I usually post something on Facebook or on one of the forums when I have some extras. I'm going, actually, my, my tricolors are just starting to feed well now, and I haven't really offered them for sale. Uh, and now it's getting cold to ship them up north. But I will be having a fair number of those for sale as more of them get to be. I like to see them feed at least six times before I ship them out. Perfect. Excellent. Well, like we said, thank you much. Um, so this has been another episode. If you want to find me, I'm available on uh, Instagram. Look up Zach Loafman or Dr. Crawdad. Uh, and then on Facebook, it's Zach Loafman. Uh, I keep saying this at the end of all the recent episodes but i am we're wrapping up this book so i need photographs so if you have photographs of any kind of dips added and you want it in the book um we get the photograph gets in the book we give you photographic credit so uh you know there is that um and then another thing if you've listening if you're listening to this and, and you have a have an undergrad degree and you're thinking about graduate school uh, we are currently recruiting for the grad lab. So anybody that's interested in maybe doing herpetoculture for their master's degree, um, hit me up for that. Uh, a couple people have actually hit me up since the podcast started. And I hope you figured out by now I'm a pretty down to earth guy. So, you know, you don't have to write anything overly for overly uh, formal. Just let me know you're interested. In fact, the best way to get a hold of me is um, through Facebook. So that's me, Matt. You can contact me at Sarpamitra on Facebook and Sarpamitra USA on Instagram. Okay, so with that, this has been another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Thank you all and have a good one. Bye-bye.